Hi there. Thanks for dropping by. My name is Josh, and this is Dharma Punks, New York. I've been the pastor here for the last 16 years. And before I jump into tonight's vaguely Halloween-themed talk, um, just reminding you, if you'd like to, everything I do is entirely by donation, offered freely in the 2,500-year-old Buddhist tradition. Uh, if you'd like to support my work, the Venmo is Dharma Punks with an X, NYC. Or you can drop by the page on the web, which has all the information, and uh, there's a PayPal button there. So thanks for your support. We'll jump into death anxiety and reincarnation. Last week we did dread, so this felt like a suitable follow-up. I think it's pretty familiar to all of you that we live with a profound psychological conflict, all of us. On the one hand, our brains have deeply embedded survival instincts. We fear threats to our survival. At the same time, while having this fear of our mortality, we also have the recognition death is inevitable and largely unpredictable. So we live with both a fear of death, but also the knowledge that it will happen to each and every one of us. And that is, of course, a profoundly uncomfortable reflection or insight or concept to grasp. So death is particularly difficult for us because we are representational beings in that we can translate our life experiences into stories and ideas. We're a language-based species. And in language, we represent our experience in stories and ideas and concepts. And these stories we tell about ourselves create the sense of a very fixed, unique identity. We tend to focus on experiences thoughts of ours that seem different from others. So as we tell stories about ourselves and represent our lives in uh, stories we carry around, these stories tend to focus on what sets us apart, what makes us unique, what uh, makes us separate from others. We don't tend to tell stories or focus our attention on how uh, common and similar we are to others, uh, the focus tends to be on uh, our, uh, of course, our internal experience. And we also tend to associate or identify ourselves with our thoughts. When push comes to shove, uh, we can see in the work of Descartes, I think, therefore I am, and so many other philosophers, that there's this tendency to believe that our thoughts lie at the epicenter 
of our identity, that our thoughts are unique, that they only exist in our head, and that they are not in any way uh, the same as other people's thoughts, which of course is not the case, but we tend to perceive it as such. And so, given that we tend to think, well, I am my, uh, I am both the story I tell about myself, I am the things that set me apart from other people, and I am my thoughts, all of this, one of the inadvertent results is that it makes us particularly terrified of death, because when we die, of course, that which uh, seems to set us apart, our thoughts, our internal experience would cease. So uh, this means that with death, there is a loss of our core essence forever. Now, when people don't have such a fixation on what sets them apart, when people don't <clears throat> try to build an identity story on what makes each of us unique, when we tend to view ourselves as deeply uh, familiar, similar to, connected with, part of uh, the human experience, there's a diminution of the fear of death, because even though we recognize that our physical body will cease, there's still a sense that the uh, that which is us will continue in others. <clears throat> when people take, interestingly enough, hallucinogens or are in deep meditative states where they learn to detach or diminish the influence of thought and inner chatter as a filter of experience, one's fear of death significantly diminishes. And in fact, there are many uh, studies that show how effective both uh, can be with uh, patients with terminal diseases. So having death anxiety, uh, we generally avoid discussing or acknowledging the facticity of our own mortality, of our death. And we mitigate death anxiety through what's called terror management. I love that. I often think that terror management would be a great name for a post-punk band. I know I would go to see them. So uh, I digress. Um, uh, we manage the terror of our anxiety. Uh, we manage the terror of death through a couple of ways, most primarily two. One is through escapist distractions, addictive dopamine resources, sensual pleasures of shops, uh, sex, food, TV binging, amassing power, amassing uh, purchasing things, uh, making plans for the future. Many psychologists note that much of human endeavor is a form of terror management, a way to distract ourselves from acknowledging that our time is limited. Now, in addition to the escapist distractions, many cultural beliefs protect us from death anxiety by promising immortality. That's the other way we soothe death anxiety. And that can be, for example, certain uh, 
spiritual paths that will not be mentioned, <coughs> Christianity, um, the belief in an afterlife, uh, or uh, for others, symbolic immortality. People will name wings at hospitals or bridges uh, and, you know, say, you know, with their name. Uh, many people will try to establish immortality by creating something that they believe will outlive them. So writing books and such. Uh, these are other ways we soothe our anxiety of uh, the loss of being and the anxiety that with our death we may be forgotten. So holding in mind our death anxiety, the Buddha uh, offered his four great truths as not only a way to address suffering, but also a way to alleviate or show a way uh, through death or past or a way to mitigate this anxiety. The first great truth is that in life, suffering is inevitable, not personal in any way. It happens to us all. And the Buddha listed in the kinds of suffering that are inevitable, old age, sickness, death, pain, the separation from and the loss of loved ones. So the Buddha is trying to say with the very first great truth that the entire Buddhist spiritual path rests on is a recognition that there's nothing personal or about us when it comes to death, that it is simply a universal experience, cannot be avoided. And so he builds his entire practice on this reflection. And in fact, one of the most important practices in uh, Buddhist, uh, uh, early Buddhism was uh, uh, Marana Sati, reflecting that I am of the nature to grow old, I'm of the nature to become sick, I am, the I am of the nature to die, be separated from those I loved, and all I can really own are the quality of my actions. So those are reflections, again, on one's mortality. Now, the second great truth is that in trying to escape awareness of death and the sufferings of life, trying to avoid them, trying to suppress them through distractions and escapism creates even greater stress. We become addicted to those sensual pleasures and those rituals and habits and routines that distract us from simply acknowledging the truths of life, that certain degrees of suffering are inevitable, just as times of joy are inevitable, times of suffering and uh, loss and grief are not personal. But in trying to escape this, we make matters worse. We, are, we become prone to an addictive over-dependence on sensual pleasures, things that produce dopamine and make us feel better for a very short time, but are ultimately unreliable. And in the third and fourth great truths, the Buddha shows a way out. 
which basically lies on accepting the nature of life, including that death and old age are inevitable, and learning to process the painful emotions and experiences rather than rely on addictive and ultimately futile, short-lasting sensual pleasures that don't really um, uh, alleviate anything. They just kick the can down the road. So uh, given death anxiety, today we have concepts of an afterlife, the whole heaven and hell that are endemic to so many spiritual paths. 2,500 years ago, in the Indus Valley region uh, and then throughout the Indian subcontinent, the concept of reincarnation or rebirth was a spiritual given. Lay practitioners in Hinduism, Jainism, yogi traditions, Brahmanism, and so forth believed that the soul, uh, we had souls that would reincarnate or what they might call Atman, that would reincarnate into new bodies, and that the quality of your rebirth, i.e. whether you were reborn into a very comfortable life or an uncomfortable life, depended on how uh, skillfully you led the previous life. So if today you were given to acts of selfishness and greed, then you would be reborn into a lowly realm but if you lived lives of generosity, kindness, and goodwill, you would be reborn into far better destinations. The belief was also that we are reborn through countless reincarnations, through a vast variety of different forms of life, human births, animal births, hungry ghost births, deva, which are angelic births, and so forth. And so this idea that we are reborn thousands, hundreds of thousands of times according to the various spiritual paths was called samsara, the endless cycling through one existence after another, after another, each existence the quality that depended upon how you lived previously. And humorously, samsara is not a good thing. It's just an endless repetition of going through one life after another, after another. Yet I believe there are perfumes and, and different things named after it. Uh, so the West tends to think that any Sanskrit or Pali term sounds uh, cool, and uh, doesn't realize when they're actually using a word that has very negative connotations. So, moving on, uh, given the nature of reincarnation, the Buddha had a very, very, very different take than all of the other spiritual paths of his time. What sets the Buddha apart is a teaching called anatta, which is very different and not found in any other spiritual path or religion. Um, the Buddha denied the existence of a soul or a fixed true self. Other spiritual paths almost invariably 
posit the existence of a soul, which would be a core essence or identity of who we are. And that core essence would be very often our will or the way our thoughts. And that this will or soul or true essence is what would be reborn after death. The Buddha denied the existence of a core essence or true self. For the Buddha, what we experience as self is an array of components, body sensations, feelings, states of consciousness, thoughts, unconscious perceptions or schemas, as is now known in psychology. So for the Buddha, all of these different components which together create the feeling of self or identity or who I am in any moment are always subtly changing. And therefore, there's no core fixed self. What we experience as ourselves is constantly in flux. It's constantly shifting. And it constantly changes depending upon who we're with, what time of day it is, what has just happened to us, what was... Uh, whether we've been triggered by something from our past and so on and so forth. Our entire ego states are constantly shifting. So there's nothing the Buddha denied that one's body, feelings, thoughts, or emotions, or memories are ever reborn. The Buddha says that he saw images of each life, but he also saw the, the craving-based karma that linked each incarnation to each incarnation. So it's basically saying what is actually linking them, what actually connects them is this constant tanha or thirst for rebirth. And the point of the Buddhist practice, the goal is not to be reborn. I want to say that again. The goal is not to be reborn. If we have a reincarnation, we have not reached the fruition of the path. For the Buddha, the goal is to accept that we die, to not go into that uh, experience craving, clinging any way out, but to turn towards it as part of the inevitable uh, process of life to acknowledge, accept it. And in that way, we don't get reborn into more and more and more and more lives where there's more and more and more and more suffering, a very fascinating insight. Now for the Buddha, there's different stages of awakening and dependent on how far you are in the path is how many lives you'll be reborn. So if you're a novice spiritual practitioner and you realize the truth that there is no core fixed concrete self, you will only be reborn seven times. But if you move further in the path and you let go of your addictions to sensual pleasures and you get to a place where your anger doesn't drive you to do unskillful things, then you'll only have rebirth, one rebirth. And if you're a fully awakened practitioner, when you pass away, the Buddha would rejoice, saying your consciousness could no longer be found in the cosmos. There would be nothing left of you, not even your craving. It would all be gone. Now, to say the least, 
There are quite a number of Buddhist teachers who don't really focus on the goal being to eliminate rebirth and that focus on the idea that uh, reincarnation and obsessing or being focused on that you'll have a rebirth is an important reflection. Many Great teachers I've studied with and sat with, uh, Ajahn Brahm and uh, Tanisaro Bhikkhu and all that, place the belief of reincarnation at the center of the Buddhist doctrine. But at the same time, many other great Buddhist, uh, famous Buddhist renunciates, monks, nuns, were had the opposite view. And one of my heroes, the great Ajahn Buddhadasa, taught the following. He said that there are many people who believe that when the body dies, there's something that remains, and that thing goes and gets reborn in another body. And he says that this is a belief that is accepted in many, many countless religions, but it's not Buddhism. This is not in any way, he says, a Buddhist teaching. For him, the most fundamental principle of Buddhism is that there is no person, soul, or true self that ever gets reborn. The Buddha was asked, he noted, if consciousness was reborn and said very distinctly, this is wrong. This has nothing to do with my teaching whatsoever. If you teach that consciousness or anything else other than craving is reborn, you're messing up the whole thing. And I tend to, as a uh, very uh, uh, non-religious and very uh, science-based Buddhist practitioner, I tend to follow Buddha Dasa's insights. In fact, Buddhadasa was also the founder of Dharmic Socialism. So he was another, uh, that's another reason he's very close to my heart. Anyway, um, so uh, that's the early teachings in a nutshell, that uh, the whole goal is to not be reborn, and that um, It is our fear of death and the craving and clinging for escapist pleasures that creates a rebirth and that uh, the whole goal is to accept the inevitable nature of life, to learn how to process the feelings without trying to escape them. And in so doing, we wouldn't be put through the samsara of rebirth. But Thousands of years after the Buddha's death, uh, if in fact there was a single historical Buddha, which is another issue entirely, uh, in the what we now call Tibet, there was or there emerged a very unique and interesting view on reincarnation, which blended some of Buddhist thought with also the early Bon religions. They were very much merged together in Tibet. So what you find in Tibet is a very unique brand of Buddhism called Vajrayana or Tantric Buddhism. 
And in that spiritual path, a concept called the bardos emerged. And so the bardos are these fascinating beliefs and transitional states that mark the end of one person's life uh, and the transition of consciousness from the old life to the new life. Now, again, this belief is very different from what the Buddha taught, but it's still a Buddhist uh, path. Now, in the tantric religions and of Mahayana believed that there's a period of time after you die called Antara Bhava, and that's being after death, Antara Bhava, being after death, during which a transmigratory being exists. And all of this is written about in what's called the Bardo Thodol or the Tibetan Book of the Dead. And the Tibetan Book of the Dead is a very, very dense and difficult text, but there are many um, different uh, both translations and summaries and Robert Wicks, the therapeutic psychology of the Theravadan, of the Tibetan Book of the Dead, are two notable examples. So these bardos, these transitional states, mark the end of one stage of life and the beginning of the next. So after death and before the rebirth is Sridpa Bardo. Anyway, it's just a transitional state. And in the Bardos, it's taught that there's a void from which spectral, right after death, spectral visions arise, beings alive and dead, spiritual entities, uh, different demonic herakas, and, and all these visions arise. And our grounding sense of who, of, our body and our, our normal perceptions have evaporated. So we are this entirely groundless, floating, ever-shifting state of consciousness, which has nothing to orient itself. And as we move through these shifting hallucinogenic realms, we encounter these spectral visions of beings from our past who are no longer living, or spiritual entities, or demonic visions. And um, so, we move through these spectral visions. And during these, the states of the bardo, we are in what clinically is a psychologist, one would say that we're in what's called a depersonalized state, a psychotic, distortive, dissociative state, where we are no longer truly aware of any feelings or sensations. We are caught up in these uh, overwhelming, uh, completely immersive visual and auditory experiences, and um, a realm of passion, and a realm of animal consciousness and confusion and aggression where hungry ghosts uh, crave and a, a hell realm at times of fear and pain, and that consciousness degenerates, according to Wicks, into an increasingly horrific experience of bewilderment and confusion. 
So this is not exactly a, pl- a fun uh, transition. The Bardo states are actually a kind of overwhelming hallucinogenic uh, experience where we are facing uh, experiences that far transcend our normal day-to-day life. Now, the point of this all is it offers an opportunity for enlightenment, an opportunity to find a way out. If we recognize the illusory nature of the hallucinations while we are in this transition from one life to another, if we recognize that they're nothing but projections, that they're not real, if we don't take them seriously, then suddenly all the delusion and illusions fall away, revealing this luminous quality of mind that allows for awakening. Uh, In the Tibetan Book of the Dead, it says that when one's mind is completely free of all the projections, because these ultimately, these the sensual sensory bombardment, bombardment, these hallucinations are all projections from our mind. When we are completely free of them, the mind becomes luminously clear. An intrinsic awareness of inner radiance and emptiness, what some call Buddha nature. There's no uh, confusion or delusion anymore. So in this bardo transition, there's an opportunity to uh, finally achieve a great state of liberation. But if we fail to see through these illusions, these hallucinogenic projections, and we take them seriously, a delusional awareness winds up in our new body when we're reborn, and we forget largely entirely about the experience. And once again, we live lives caught up in believing the delusions of our own mind. So in that state after death, in the bardos, there's this opportunity when we become, we are no longer embodied and we are floating states of consciousness, facing all of the uh, projections of our minds, Uh, and hell realms, there's this opportunity. We can see that everything is a uh, essentially a projection or hallucination of the mind, or we can believe everything we experience. And if that's the case, we wind up being reborn into yet another delusional life where we confuse our thoughts and our feelings and our fears for reality. Now, noting how perceptions can be hallucinatory projections of our unconscious was very important in the 1960s. You might remember or not remember, or this might be familiar. There was um, a book by Ram Dass, Timothy Leary, uh, The Psychedelic Experience, which used the Tibetan Book of the Dead and the Bardo concept as a roadmap for how and what to expect when one took hallucinogens. For them, the Bardo transitions were actually very, very similar to what one would experience 
while taking LSD. And of course, now today, as people undertake ayahuasca plant medicine uh, experiences, they often also experience uh, states that can be very uh, painful, uh, very, very challenging, but also experience great insights. And so in the 60s, there was uh, the Tibetan Book of the Dead was used as a way to make sense of what to experience during an acid trip and what one should do during this journey. And they wrote, I have it here, when torturing visions come, the first impulse will be to flee in panic and in terror, not caring where one goes so long as one gets out. But one should neither flee the pain nor pursue the pleasure. Recognition is all that is necessary. It is unwise to struggle against or flee what one experiences. And so here we have a very Buddhist concept that accepting both what one is experiencing, but also seeing how much one's experience is a projection of the mind and not real is of great import. Reactive, avoidant impulses makes the illusion scarier and seem more real, according to the authors. So the more we resist, the more the delusions persist. All the bardos are the heightened qualities of repressed ego states that we've compartmentalized. In other words, the painful, frightening, worrying experiences that we've split from consciousness and suppressed over the years and not acknowledged are what we would experience in these uh, transmigratory states after death. That doesn't sound very fun. Carl Jung wrote that the Buddhas are a confrontation with one's shadow self. The shadow consists of inclinations that society deems unlovable, the parts of ourselves we fail to integrate. And so just like in dreams very often, in nightmares and anxiety dreams, one experiences uh, fears and buried desires that we're uncomfortable with, so we, would we in uh, the uh, Bardo states. And so what we're asked to do in the transmigratory re a journey from one birth to another is to essentially wake up from a dream, which is not that easy. <laughs> As if you've ever tried to wake yourself up from while dreaming, you know how persistent and how true and real even the, the most absurd images of a dream can seem, can seem to you because you're actually experiencing it. It's very difficult to remember while dreaming, this is just a dream. But the point for Leary uh, in the psychedelic experience and the point of the Tibetan Book of the Dead is that in this transitional state of moving from one birth to another, if we could realize that everything is just a projection of one's own mind and not real, that it wasn't actually happening, that would be awakening. Each Bardo experience offers a way to overcome our unconscious tendencies, according to Robert Wicks. 
and whether the tendencies involve ignorance or desire, envy, jealousy, or aggression, the images are merely dreamlike reflections of one's inner self. So enlightenment is realized when we recognize that everything we see and experience is a reflection of our own minds. And that is tonight's talk on death, anxiety, rebirth, reincarnation. I hope that something in it was worth your uh, reflection or list or thoughts or might be of interest to you to pursue and learn more about. But now what we're going to do is a meditation where we learn to disidentify with our experience so that if we are ever in a transmigratory state, moving from one incarnation to the next, and we are confronted by the overwhelming uh, delusional hallucinations born of our own unconsciousness, we will be able to step back and say, I see you, you are not real. So thank you for listening, and let's find a comfortable uh, um, somebody writes, I think the movie in this is right, is called Into the Void. So if you want to watch Into the Void, that's the Gaspar Noe film that is a wonderful subjective take on what the Bardo states would be like. It's, uh, it's a very challenging film, but a good one. And uh, so if you're interested in seeing a cinematic uh, version of it, check that out. So let's now though, move from uh, thinking and uh, into being. And so find a really comfortable seated position. And just, if you wanna lie down, lie down. If you want to stand up, stand up. If you want to sit in a reclining chair, do that. Don't try to sit in a traditional meditative posture unless that's your thing. The goal is to balance uh, being awake, but also being relaxed. So focusing too much on being awake and we're no longer relaxed, focus a little bit too much on being overly relaxed and we're no longer awake, we fall asleep. So find some nice balance between comfort, but also maintaining uh, a state of awakeness, alertness, and for some of us, that can simply be finding a really good balance if we're sitting upright, or it can be just sitting in such a way that's not, that what, while comfortable, is not going to be conducive for sleep. Or just simply put a lot of effort into your practice. So with that let's withdraw our attention from the world around us with the exception of sounds if you'd like to uh, keep listening to the sounds emanating from your surroundings that's fine 
but uh, try not to visualize what's creating the sounds. Just listen to the sounds of your surroundings as if they are a very exotic, unusual form of music you've never heard before. Not criticizing or judging the sounds, just allowing them to rise and pass, reaching sensory awareness, passing, no longer being held in the mind, just moving and keeping present with whatever sounds are present. And with the rest of your awareness, bring it into your body and just take a survey and see if there's anything you can do to relax and make your practice even more comfortable. So for some that can be scanning your body for sensations of discomfort, pain, awkwardness, anything you'd like to adjust. I like to do paired muscle relaxations sometimes uh, at the beginning of a practice. So I'll squinch the toes of both feet and arch the feet and relax. I'll tighten the muscles in both calves, then I'll relax. I'll clench the thigh muscles, then relax. The same for the buttocks and relax. I'll tighten and contract the belly and soften and so forth, moving up the body, the arms, the back, finally reaching the face where we squinch all the muscles in the face and then release. And the goal is, or really the way it works, is that when you clench and release muscles, you actually attain a far more relaxed state that if you simply try to relax the muscles without clenching, it actually discharges the action potential built up in muscles, which during the course of the day are very often kept tight in the anticipation of we'll have to move. So when you actually tighten and move them and then release, you discharge all the uh, holding inner holding clenching clenching of those muscles and you can achieve a greater state of ease while listening to sounds and being cognizant of body sensations arising and passing See if you can become aware of whether you're breathing in or out. Just knowing, am I breathing in right now or am I breathing out? And simply maintain awareness in some way that can be counting uh, either inhalations or exhalations from one to 10 and then back down. So you count each inhalation up to 10, 
and then back down or each exhalation, whichever you prefer. And inclining the exhalations to be as long as the inhalations, that activates your parasympathetic nervous system. The vagal nerve allows you to relax and be comfortable, keep your belly soft and pliant, and just enjoy the presence of being and to prepare us for our possible bardo states in the future. The goal for this meditation will be every time a memory or a thought about the future, a reflection or anything that pulls you away from sensations that are actually happening right now, Anytime you get lost in thought or fantasy or memories, just see if you can develop the ability to see that these are nothing but delusional projections. They're not real. No matter how real they seem, they're not actually happening. They're just spectral images or words being added on top of what's actually really happening. And so the practice is, without any judgment or frustration, just let go and return to being present with your breath, your body, with the sounds around you, relaxing into the present. And the practice will be just again and again and again, learning to, without any frustration, each time you get lost in thought, just learn how to recognize when we're not present, learn to realize it's not real, and just return back to the present.
Now at this time, if you like, allow your mind to bring up a persistent fear or concern or worry that haunts at times consciousness or that we lapse into. And just practice welcoming as well as acknowledging that this is nothing but an illusion, nothing but a spectral vision of something that's not actually happening right now. Using your practice as a way to detach, disidentify with even the most persistent fears or worries or concerns that the mind can conjure using awareness of the sounds, your body, or if you'd like, conjure up positive images in your mind that while knowing that they're not real, they can soothe you. Images of people who are kind, accepting, loving, reliable, or people who embody those characteristics.
So at this time, I'm going to ring the bowl. And uh, whenever you're ready, take your time and just bring your awareness back to the world around you. Whenever you feel like it, open your eyes and reorient to your surroundings. So thank you for, for that, for your practice. And uh, so... Uh,